Welcome to Of Two Minds. I'm your host, Sarah Shord. In this show, we take a critical look at tribalism in this country and how it often blocks us from having sane, productive conversations. This episode is about a nerdy black kid from rural Tennessee who grew into a leftist icon. His name is Van Jones. My mom let me paint and draw on the walls of my bedroom. That was extremely unusual in a small southern town. Van's one of the most well-known faces on the left. He has his own show on CNN, worked for the Obama administration, and runs an organization called Dream Corps that aims to end mass incarceration, create jobs that help the environment, and diversify tech. We don't pair Van with anyone in this episode because I think the conversation stands alone. It's a reflection on the left in general, where we're at, what we haven't learned yet, and what needs to be done to make sure Trump doesn't get reelected. Before we get there, though, let's hear about what it was like for Van growing up. In a way, he's always been the person in the middle, the guy who never fit in and doesn't expect to. In high school, his mom gave him some important advice. That for some people, high school is like the pinnacle of their existence. They're super popular, they're the homecoming queen and king, and they do everything, and they spend the rest of their lives looking back on high school as like their big glory moment. And she said, Anthony, that is not going to be your experience, okay? She says, uh, you're going to have your glory moment later. Like she said, let these kids have their happy time. Uh, you know, your time will come. Van was a skinny, sensitive boy who was teased and bullied a lot. I think that's a lot of why, you know, guys that grew up the way that I grew up, like comic books and stuff like that, where like the nerdy guy actually has like, you know, special powers and can beat the bad guys and that kind of stuff. And like, I don't think I ever got too far away from that. There must have been some of the kids that appreciated you, though. I mean, like, were you popular with the girls? No. I mean, come on. You had that, that smile. I'm sure you still had that smile. No. No? No <laughs> smile? <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, I wasn't. I mean... You know, uh, no, no, girls don't like guys like me when you're in high school and college. You know, growing up in the rural South, if you can't bench press a tractor, you're just, you know, at the back of the line. You get a lot of girls that will tell you about the boy that broke their heart. You get to be everybody's best friend. But, you know, that's not very satisfying. Van's mother, Loretta, grew up very comfortably. Her dad was the president of a small black college. But Van's father, Willie, grew up poor in Memphis. This caused conflict in the house. You know, and, you know, my parents, uh, you know, stayed married until the very end, probably shouldn't have. Van's dad started his career in the military. He wanted Van to be a football player, a tough guy. I mean, he shook hands with my dad, like shaking hands with a brick. And then he's got this you know, very sensitive, you know, little boy writing poetry, and he just was con convinced I was going to get smushed like a bug. Though Van looked up to his dad, he grew up knowing he didn't want to make the same mistakes. And, you know, my dad was a you know, hard worker, hard smoker, hard drinker. Uh, the smoking killed him in the end. Uh, and, you know, the drinking meant that, you know, he was a great guy until he wasn't, you know. And um, so I uh, made a decision when I was four years old. I'd never drink alcohol, and I never have. Never had a beer, never had a sip of champagne, never had any of that stuff. And uh, I think it's probably the best decision I ever made because I'm, you know, such an obsessive, intense personality that I think if I had... Um, been able to find some kind of uh, intoxicants or whatever, I might have had the same problem with it my dad did. Van's dad was also a political force. 
After he left the military, he got into education and became the assistant principal at a middle school. When he was told he couldn't be principal, he got the NAACP to sue and won. When they gave him the worst school in the county to run, he responded by turning it into one of the best schools in the state. Dad was probably um, the sharpest political mind I've ever encountered, and I've been with the best in the world. Van did really well in school, but he was still a skinny, awkward teenager. He decided he needed to change his name. So I said, yeah, I need to need to change my name. Anthony Jones is not going to work in college. It'll become Tony Jones, and then it's going to become Boney Tony, because I only weighed probably at that time like 120 pounds. And I, I realized that, you know, like really cool people, and they either have like the initials, like the JFK or, you know, RFK, whatever, or they have like one name, like Sting or Prince, you know, or Cher or something like that. So I said, you know, I wanted a, I wanted a one-syllable name. And I went through the whole, you know, Jet Jones and Rush Jones, ultimately Van Jones. And um, it works. I mean, it just it's a great, you know, superhero identity. With that name change, he was ready for Yale. And I got in my car and I got out in Yale, at Yale. Um, the class and regional elitism was so much more powerful um, really than anything I had experienced in the South when it came to race. Um, it was very clear, this is, a, this is an overlord class. Coming from the rural South and leaving it to go to an Ivy League school gave Van a unique perspective. Whereas, I think in rural and rural environments and small town environments, um, and, you know, I may, I may not want you marrying my, my daughter, but if I see your car broken down the side of the road, I'm much more likely to stop and help you across those, those lines. And so... Um, you know, I'm not fooled by the kind of um, declarations of the cosmopolitan elite about their egalitarian um, sensibilities because they're stepping over homeless people while they're talking about how bad Trump is. After Yale, Van could have gone into politics or become a judge. Instead, he moved to Oakland and started suing cops and organizing to shut down jails. In those days, he wore dreadlocks down to his shoulders and little round John Lennon glasses. He used to call me Black Napalm because I, I had no time or tolerance for bullshit. 25 years later, after being 25, I would look at somebody like me now and just say, yeah, it's all out. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have much time for someone like me. But you need those kind of people. You need people like that. You know, young, hungry, not a part of the establishment, don't care, um, because it counterbalances a bunch of money on the other side. Um, I'm proud of that young man. But I sure wouldn't hire that motherfucker. Because <laughs> people like that are impossible to have on your staff. Van continued to sue the police and fight mass incarceration for the next 15 years. Then his radical leftist community imploded. There was just too much infighting. This led Van to the first of two existential crises. He began to rethink everything, from his own dominating behavior to his political strategy. And there's, you know, six, seven, eight billion people live on planet Earth. And just being a self-righteous leftist, you know, here in the Bay, when I see what's going on with climate change, I see what's going on with the prison system and how big it is, uh, nobody can move to my left because I'm already, you know, on the left side of Pluto. So was there a certain point that um, where you made a conscious decision to soften? You know, the wall softened me. When you're smashing your head against a wall long enough, your head gets a lot softer because <laughs> you tend to crack it open. 
In order to reach more people, he decided he needed to be less confrontational and find a way out of the leftist bubble. So I had to kind of rebuild a whole new Rolodex and, and set of communities and ideas, and that resulted in the whole green jobs thing, which wound up with you know, me helping to get uh, George W. Bush to sign the Green Jobs Act of 2007 based on work we were doing in Oakland, which was nuts. Van's Green Jobs Initiative combined fighting racism with cleaning up the environment by creating jobs for formerly incarcerated people and youth of color. It's crazy that what started as a small project in Oakland now had the backing of Republican George Bush. And then I wrote a book about that, 2008 became a bestseller, and then Obama or somebody close to Obama read the book, and suddenly I'm in the White House. Van didn't last long at the White House. He was pushed out after being branded a socialist radical by the right wing. Though he knew stepping down was the best way to support Obama's presidency, he left the White House clinically depressed and unsure what to do next. This was his second existential crisis, and another shift in his thinking. Before, he prioritized being left of Pluto. Now he was working to have the biggest platform he could. He got a job as a pundit on CNN, a long way from the days he was called Black Napalm. I'm an extreme introvert with an extreme extrovert's job. So I'm on television, I give speeches, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, um, it, it, it's honestly part of the reason I do what I do is if there's going to be more than one person in the room, just make it a thousand, make it a million. Like I can talk to one person pretty easily if it's the right person. Once you got two people, three people, like four people, that's too stressful for me. It really is. So at that point, you may as well just put me on TV because it's, 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 frankly, it's easier for me to talk to a million people than it is for me to talk to like five. Today, Van has his own show on CNN, The Van Jones Show, on which he's had some of the most famous people in the world, from Kim Kardashian to Jay-Z and Oprah. I've heard people on the left criticize Van for abandoning his base, but he disagrees. He feels that now that he has this huge megaphone, he can use it to try and solve the same intractable problems he's always cared about. Um, like I said, I had Oprah Winfrey, the you know the richest you know black woman I think in the world. Maybe you know if she's not, certainly one of them. Um, and we talked about women in prison. Um, I think that's a, it's, if you want to know what I'm doing, that's it. You, I mean, I, I could just shut up and hit play. That's what I'm doing, building the biggest platform that I can to reach as many people as I can, including our choir, but way beyond it, um, so that then we can raise the tough issues around climate, around incarceration, around division, around hatred, you know, which affects everybody. Van insists that having a larger platform hasn't changed him, and he hates that the left is so terrible at spreading its own ideas. He thinks certain parts of it can be cultish. Movements are trying to get bigger every day. They're trying to grow every day. Cults are, not, are mainly policing for heretics. Cults have no power over me because I, ne I, I didn't grow up with any peers. I didn't have any friends. So part of if I have a superpower is that I don't care. I mean, th does it hurt if somebody says, we think you're an Uncle Tom sellout, blah, blah, blah? Yes. Does it feel good if somebody says, we think you're a wonderful person? Yes. But fundamentally, I'm not going to go along with bullshit. Van sometimes finds himself the target of a lot of hatred, ironically more from the left than from the right. Some are critical of the alliances he's made with conservatives like Newt Gingrich and the Koch brothers, working with them around the shared goal of reducing the prison population. 
Van says that he welcomes healthy criticism, but he refuses to respond to the abuse he gets online, which has been getting more vicious under Trump. Here's the thing. If I thought there was some way to please the liberals, you know, in my weaker moments, I probably would try. But I know that actually you can't please them because right now they feel helpless. Unless you're just telling them, you know, what they want to hear, they're going to have very little bandwidth to hear more. On top of that, Van says, all the infighting keeps them from seeing what's actually going on. Your enemy isn't Trump. Your enemy is Putin. Trump is not Hitler. Trump is Berlusconi. He's a kleptocrat and a clown with some authoritarian tendencies, but he's not Hitler. And Putin doesn't want fascism in America, which would, which would imply a strong state. Putin wants a dysfunctional, divided society, which we're helping him have on the left. If you spend your time freaking out about every tweet and every bad thing, you won't have the energy to fight. Van thinks the left needs to unify and model better behavior. Though a good idea in theory, to me, this concept feels out of touch. Is it really a time for unity? Like, is that realistic? Is this a time where people are just going to, like, all of, a, all of a sudden come together and love each other? It doesn't actually feel like that's what's happening. Um, so is, is it fair for me to expect people to rise? Uh, no, it's not fair. But it's necessary. It's not fair at all. If you're a woman, a person of color, a Muslim, an immigrant, a queer person, is it fair for you to have to try to rise and be a great person in the face of this? It's not fair, but it's necessary. And I'm not going to lower the bar. Respond to fear with love. Respond to fear with love. All that venom and shit from these people, at the end of the day, believe it or not, they are scared of us. They are terrified that we're going to take their guns, that we're going to disrespect their faith, that we're going to rape and kill them, that we're going to take their jobs, that we, that we don't love them, that we don't respect them, that we don't appreciate what they've given to the country. And they see us rising and they're afraid. Here, Van's talking about the people that got Trump elected. He believes that the left can and will regain power, but will have to win some people back. By 2016, our coalition includes transgender people, immigrants with no apology, Black Lives Matter with no apology. I mean, it's a beautiful circle. But you can, without decentering any of those people, you can draw that circle bigger and include more people in it, um, including some white working guys who didn't see themselves reflected and who um, were hurting. People failed to do the work needed to get Hillary elected. Things like house parties and phone banking and door knocking in swing states. And if this doesn't change, Trump just might get reelected. Nobody did any work. So you have a small circle, you don't listen and you don't work hard, you get beat. That doesn't mean Nazis are taking over. What that means is you're very, very powerful and didn't know it. I think we're going to have to govern. And when we govern, we have to govern for everybody. And that's what I'm constantly being responsible to. When Vance says things like this, some people get upset. People that don't believe it's right or even safe to build bridges with people they consider racist. This makes me curious if Van has any regrets about his own career. Right now, I'm well-paid and I'm famous. I'm fine. I could sit up on a high horse and denounce everybody who disagrees with me and have all the liberals love everything I say and, you know, do my next book. My next book would be called White Lash, you know, Why to Hate Donald Trump. And I could make a million dollars. You know, I don't, I could do all that stuff. But is it going to close one prison? Is it going to get one person home? Is it going to get one job for anybody? All this self-righteous shit. What are we doing? 
We're still doing the same stuff we did that got Trump elected the first time. We're still being self-righteous victims. We're still and bullying our own. Being self-righteous victims and bullying our own. That can't win. This is the Van Jones I like the most. The van that sees through all the bullshit and says things he knows won't be popular, but that someone needs to say. Anyway, well, thank you. It's been a great season of Of Two Minds. I've been really excited about what's come out of these conversations. One thing that surprised me was the anxiety that a lot of people felt. Many of our guests almost backed out at the last minute. I had to convince them that I'd do my best to fairly represent them. If anything, I think that anxiety reflects a much larger distrust that we're all dealing with. A distrust of politics, a distrust of journalism, and a distrust of one another. One great thing I found was that all of our guests came out of this experience feeling better. They actually enjoyed having an honest conversation with someone with a different point of view. What doing these interviews really brought home for me is that again and again, I was reminded that people navigate the world in their own context, not ours. And every context is different, sometimes in pretty significant ways. Take Mike, for example, the Tea Party environmentalist from episode three. I never knew it was possible to be an environmentalist that doesn't believe in global warming. But our beliefs don't exist in a vacuum. If Mike started walking around his neighborhood in rural Louisiana, preaching about climate change, no one would listen. It would do nothing to convince more people to care for the environment. Our beliefs and identities anchor us in a chaotic world, but we often can't see past them enough to realize that we have so many interests in common. Many of the powerful people in American history have successfully kept us divided so they could hold on to their power. This has been happening since the 17th century, when poor whites and freed slaves were pitted against each other rather than joining forces against plantation owners. Sometimes it feels like our class and racial divides haven't changed that much. And I think Van's right. The left definitely needs to get better at listening. And I don't think we have to go against our values to do this, but I do think we need to be able to meet people where they are and try really hard to understand their context not just project our own context onto them. I understand that not everyone is in a position to step out of their communities and forge alliances, but I hope that everyone is able to do this in some way, a way that works for them, because there are so many problems we need to work on, and to figure them out, we're gonna need to get a lot more people on the same page. for listening to this season of Of Two Minds. I'm your host, Sarah Short. Jeremy Dalmas is our senior editor and sound engineer. The Nader Nobari Foundation is our executive producer. I want to thank Dan Newman for help with research, DreamCore and Big Oakland for giving us office space, and our colleagues, Robert Rosenthal, Keely Badger, Liam O'Donohue, Leah Rose, Nisha Anand, and Gus Alexander for all kinds of support. And thanks to Van and all our wonderful guests. We're basically a two-person show, so we'd love it if you helped us spread the word. If you like what we've done here, please review us on iTunes and tell other people. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.